Section 33 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 19. Three French Presidents. Part 1. Marshal MacMahon, the Duke of Magenta, was of Irish descent, his ancestors having followed James II into exile and distinguished themselves at the Battle of the Boyne. Their descendant, Patrice, or Patrick, the subject of this sketch, was the sixteenth of seventeen children. He was born when French glory was at its height, under the First Empire, in the summer of 1806. When he was seventeen, he was sent to the military school at Saint-Cyr. There his Irish dash and talent soon won him renown. In Algeria he acquired fame and fortune and the cross of the Legion of Honour. In 1830 he went to the siege of Antwerp, at the time when the French insisted on promoting a revolution in Belgium, and the moment that enterprise was over he retired to Algeria. At twenty-five he was a captain, and had distinguished himself at the siege of Constantine, fighting side by side with the Duc de Nemours and that other French officer of Irish descent, Marshal Neil. At forty-four he was a general of division, and had seen twenty-seven years of service. The Arabs called him the Invulnerable. He went to the Crimean War, and there led the attack on the Malakoff, holding his post until the place was won. Devoted to his profession, he was diffident in society. He was named a senator by Napoleon III after his return from the Crimea, but declined to take his seal, refusing at the same time some other proffered honours. He was sent back to Algeria at his own request, and stayed there, fighting the Arabs, for five years. Then, returning to Paris, he took his seat in the Senate, where he opposed some of the arbitrary decrees of the Emperor. In the Italian War in 1859 he fought with distinguished bravery, and on the battlefield of Magenta was made a Marshal of France and Duke of Magenta. After being ambassador at Berlin he was sent to bear the Emperor's congratulations to King William on his accession, and to attend his coronation. He was again sent to Algeria as its Governor-General. He had already married Marie, daughter of the Duc de Castries. She was very rich, and connected with some of the most opulent bankers in Vienna. Marshal MacMahon came back to France at the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War, and was given the command of the First Army Corps. But the Emperor insisted on commanding his own armies as General-in-Chief. The day before the surrender at Sedan, Marshal MacMahon had been badly wounded, and had to resign his command to General Ducrot. Ducrot being also wounded, it became the sad duty of General Wimpfen to sign the capitulation. Marshal MacMahon was taken as a prisoner to Wiesbaden, where he remained till the close of the war. He got back to Paris forty-eight hours before the outbreak of the Commune. A commander was needed for the forces of France. M. Thiers chose Marshal MacMahon, who with tears in his eyes thanked him for the opportunity of retrieving his lost reputation and doing service for France. After he had collected his army, which it took some weeks to bring back from Germany, to equip and to reorganize, his men fought desperately for seven days, pushing their way step by step into the heart of the capital, till on May 28, 1871, the Marshal addressed a proclamation to France, informing Frenchmen that the Commune was at an end. He then passed out of public sight, eclipsed by the superior radiance of Thiers and Gambetta. But as time went on, and it was determined by the monarchists to coalesce with the extreme radicals and get rid of M. Thiers, who was labouring to establish a law-and-order republic, the newspapers of both the conservative and radical parties began to exalt the marshal's merits at the expense of, quote, that sinister old man, end quote, Monsieur Thiers. After six months of this trumpet-blowing by the opposition press, 
the idea was planted in the minds of Frenchmen that Marshal MacMahon was the statesman who might bring France out of all her difficulties. It was ascertained by the monarchists that Marshal MacMahon would accept the presidency if it were offered him, and would consider himself a stopgap until such time as France should make up her mind whether the Comte de Chambord or someone else should be her king. The attack on M. Thiers was then organized. M. Thiers was defeated. He sent in his resignation, and it was accepted by a small majority in the chamber. A moment after, Marshal MacMahon was proposed as his successor, and immediately elected. May 24, 1873. At this time the parties in the French chamber were seven, and their policy was for two or more of them to combine for any temporary object. Legitimists, Orleanists, and Bonapartists formed the right. Anarchists, Red Republicans, and Decided Republicans formed the left, while the centre was made up of men of moderate opinions of all parties who were willing to accept an orderly and stable government of any kind. This party may be said to represent to the present hour the prevailing state of public feeling in France. The three parties on the left quarrelled fiercely among themselves. The three parties on the right did the same. Both left and right, however, were eager to rally the centre to their side. The coalitions, hatreds, and misunderstandings of these seven parties constitute for eighteen years almost the entire history of the Third Republic. In 1873 the monarchists, that is, the three parties on the right, were stronger than the combined parties on the left, but not so strong if the moderates of the centre voted with the left Republicans. Again, if the Legitimists, Orleanists, and the centre should unite, and the Bonapartists should go over to the left, the left would be the stronger. The Duc de Broglie, an excellent man, grandson of Madame de Stel, was made President MacMahon's Prime Minister. So far the monarchists had prospered. They had command of the President, the Assembly, and the Army, these were all prepared to accept Henri V, provided he would retreat from the position he had taken up in 1871, consent to become a constitutional sovereign, give up his white flag, and accept the tricolore. The monarchists appointed a committee of nine to negotiate this matter with the prince at Frusdorf. But Marshal MacMahon gave them this warning, quote, If the white flag is raised against the tricolore, the chasse-pot will go off of themselves, and I cannot answer for order in the streets or for discipline in the army. End quote. With great difficulty the nine succeeded in procuring an assurance from the Comte de Chambord that he would leave the question of the flag to be decided in concert with the Assembly after his restoration. Meantime he came to Versailles and remained hidden in the house of one of his supporters. Everybody urged him to accept the conditions on which alone he could reign, and fulfil the hopes of his faithful followers. They implored him to ascend the throne as a constitutional sovereign, and to accept the tricolore, in deference to the wishes of the people and his friends. He passed an entire night in miserable indecision, walking up and down his friend's dining-room, debating with himself whether he would give way. It had been arranged that the next day he should present himself suddenly in the assembly, be hailed with acclamation by his supporters, and be introduced by the marshal president himself as Henri V. The building was to be guarded by faithful troops, the telegraph was prepared to flash the news through France, the very looms at Lyon were weaving silks brocaded with fleur-de-lis but Henri V could not bring himself to comply. He fled away from Versailles before dawn. Quote, he is an honest man, said M. Thiers, and will not put his flag in his pocket. A few days later he published at Salzburg a letter in which he protested against the pressure his friends had brought to bear on him. Quote, Never, he said, will I become a revolutionary king, by which he meant a king who reigned under a constitution. Never, he protested, would he sacrifice his honour to the exigencies of parties. 
quote, and, he concluded, never will I disclaim the standard of Arques and of Ivry. Quote, the Count, said an English newspaper, seems to have forgotten that Arques and Ivry were Protestant victories. Quote, my person, continued the Count, is nothing, my principle is everything. I am the indispensable pilot, the only man capable of guiding the vessel into port, because for this I have mission and authority. Thus ended all chances for Henri V. The Orléans princes, having concluded a compact with him as his heirs, felt themselves bound in honour to refuse to accept any compromise which, quote, the head of the family, end quote, did not approve. It can be easily imagined how provoked and disappointed were all those who had rallied to the king's party. There remained nothing to do but to strengthen the republic and to provide it with a permanent constitution. A committee of thirty was appointed to draw up the document. The constitution was very conservative. It has now been in force nineteen years, but it has never worked smoothly, and the object of the extreme republicans, who have clamoured for quote-unquote revision, has been to eliminate its conservative elements and make it red republican. It is impossible for a people who change their government so often to have much respect or love for any constitution. The Marshal, Duke of Magenta, had accepted the presidency without any great desire to retain it. Nevertheless, he established his household on a semi-royal footing, as though he intended, as some thought, that there should be at least a temporary court, to prepare the way for what might be at hand. M. Thiers had been a bourgeois president, the Marshal was a grand seigneur. M. Thiers' servants had been clothed in black, the marshals wore gay liveries of scarlet plush and grey and silver. When M. Thiers took part in any public ceremony, he drove in a handsome landau with a mounted escort of republican guards, and his friends, he never called them his suite, followed as they pleased in their own carriages. But the marshals' equipages were painted in three shades of green and lined with pearl-grey satin. They were drawn by four grey horses with postilions and outriders. To see M. Thiers on business was as easy as it is to see the President at the White House. Anybody could be admitted on sending a letter to his secretary. To journalists he was always accessible, believing himself still to belong to their profession. But to approach the Marshal was about as hard as to approach a king, and he hated above all things newspaper writers. In 1873 the Shah of Persia came to Paris, and the Marshal entertained him magnificently. He gave him a torchlight procession of soldiers a gala performance at the Grand Opera, and a banquet in the Galerie des Glaces at Versailles. The Parisians regretted that the visit had not been made in M. Thiers' time, when society might have been amused by stories of how the omniscient little president had instructed the Shah, through an interpreter, as to Persian history and the etymology of Oriental languages. But society had a good story connected with the visit after all. During the state banquet at Versailles, the Shah turned to the Duchess of Magenta and asked her, in a French sentence someone had taught him for the occasion, why her husband did not make himself emperor. The marshal was content to hold his place as president, and the Duc de Broglie governed for him, except in anything relating to military affairs. On these the marshal always had his way. The Duc de Broglie's government, which was all in the interest of the monarchical principle, became distrusted and unpopular. In one year twenty-one Republicans and six Bonapartists gained seats in the Assembly, while the Orleanist and Legitimate parties gained not one. By 1874 the cause of royalty in France was at a low ebb. In this year, a year after the downfall of M. Thiers, the Duc de Broglie was defeated in the Chamber on some measure of small importance, but his defeat turned him summarily out of office. The left centre, that is, the Republicans from conviction, was the strongest of the seven parties the Republic seemed established on a basis of law and order. 
According to the Constitution, the President was chosen for seven years, with the chance of re-election. The Chamber of Deputies was elected for seven years by universal suffrage, but every year one-third of its members had to retire into private life or stand for a new election. The Senate was chosen by a complicated arrangement, partly by the Chamber, partly by a sort of electoral college, the members of which were drawn from the councils of departments, the arrondissements, and the municipalities of cities. As Gambetta said, quote, so chosen, it could not be a very democratic assemblage. Arrondissement, in the political language of our southern states, would be translated electoral districts, either in town or country. In the northern states, it would mean districts for the cities, townships in the country. The Speaker, or President of the Chamber, at Tours, at Bordeaux, and at Versailles, until a month before the downfall of M. Thiers, had been the immaculately respectable M. Jules Grévy who had entered public life in 1848. He had been deposed during the period when the monarchists had strength and felt sure of the throne for Henri V, and he had been replaced by a M. Buffet. It was M. Buffet who became Prime Minister on the downfall of the Duc de Broglie. Marshal MacMahon by no means relished being governed by a cabinet composed of men of more advanced Republican opinions than his own. But it is useless to go deeper into the parliamentary squabbles of this period. Then began the quarrel of which we have read so often in associated press telegrams, the dispute concerning the scrutin de liste and the scrutin d'arrondissement. Scrutin means ballot. Scrutin de liste means that electors might choose any Frenchman as their candidate. Scrutin d'arrondissement, that they must confine their choice to some man living in the district for which he wished to stand. The left disapproved the scrutin d'arrondissement, which gave too much scope, it said, for local interests to have weight over political issues. In our own country, local interests are provided for by state legislatures, and in elections for Congress the scrutin d'arrondissement is adopted. On the last day of December 1875, the National Assembly was dissolved. Confused, uninteresting, factious as it had been on points of politics, it had at least taught Frenchmen something of parliamentary tactics and the practical system of compromise. The American government is said to be based on compromise. In France, all or nothing had been the cry of French parties from the beginning. The leader of the left was now Gambetta, who managed affairs with discretion and in a spirit of compromise. From this policy his immediate followers have been called opportunists, because they stood by, watching the course of events, ready to promote their own plans at every opportunity. The new assembly proved much too republican to please the marshal. In every way his situation perplexed and worried him. He was not a man of eminent ability, and had never been trained to politics. He had been used to govern as a soldier. His head may have been a little turned by the flattery so freely showered on him before his election, and he had come to entertain a belief that he was indispensable to France. He saw himself the protector of order against revolutionary passions, and conceived himself to be adored as the sole hope of the people. Quote, Believing this, he could hardly have been expected to conform to the simple formulas which govern the councils of constitutional kings. Moreover, behind the marshal was his friend the Duc de Broglie, quote, now counselling compromise and now resistance, but always meditating a sudden blow in favour of monarchy. End quote. By the close of 1876, it became so evident that the government of France could not be carried on upon strictly conservative principles that even the Duc de Broglie advised the marshal to form a cabinet from the left, under the prime ministership of M. Jules Simon. This gentleman had been one of the five Jules in the Committee of Defence in 1870. He was an upright man, very liberal in his opinions, and philosophic in his tendencies, which made him especially unacceptable to Marshal McMahon. 
Simon formed a ministry which governed with perpetual parliamentary disputes till May 16, 1877. On that day Marshal McMahon sent a letter to his Prime Minister, telling him that he did not appear to have sufficient support in the Chamber to carry on the government, and reproaching him with his radical tendencies. Of course the Minister and his colleagues at once resigned. The Marshal then dissolved the Chamber, and appealed to the people, placing the Duc de Broglie ad interim at the head of affairs. In spite of all the Marshal and his friends could do to secure a conservative majority in the new Chamber, it was largely and strongly Republican. There was no help for it. As Gambetta said, the Marshal must either se soumettre ou se démettre, choose submission or dismission. He had a passing thought of again dissolving the unruly Chamber, and governing by the Senate alone. He found, however, that the country did not consider him indispensable, and was prepared to put M. Thiers in his place if he resigned. But M. Thiers did not live to receive that proof of his country's gratitude. He died, as we have seen, in the summer of 1877, and the next choice of the Republican Party was M. Jules Grévy. For two years longer the Marshal held the reins of government, but he resigned on being required to sign a resolution changing the generals who commanded the four army corps. Quote, in a letter full of dignity, says M. Gabriel Monon, and which appeared quite natural on the part of a soldier more concerned for the interests of the army than for those of politics, he tendered his resignation. The two chambers met together, and in a single sitting, without noise or disturbance, M. Jules Grévy was elected, and proclaimed President of the French Republic for seven years. It is said that in 1830, when Charles X published his ordinances and placarded his proclamation on the walls of Paris, a young law student who was tearing down one of them was driven off with a kick by one of the king's officers. The officer was Patrice McMahon, the law student Jules Grévy. M. Grévy was preeminently respectable. He was born in the Jura Mountains, August 15, 1813. His father was a small proprietor. Diligence and energy rather than brilliancy distinguished the young Jules in his college career. When his college life ended, he went to Paris and studied for the bar. McMahon's kick roused his pugnacity. He went home, took down an old musket, and joined the insurgents, leading an attack upon some barracks where the fighting was severe. The revolution having ended in a constitutional monarchy, he went into a lawyer's office and plodded on in obscurity for eighteen years. In 1848 he rendered services to the provisional government, and the farmers of his district in the Jura elected him their deputy. He went into the chamber as an advanced Republican, and voted for the banishment of the Orléans family, for a republic without a president, and for other extreme measures. Before long he was elected vice-president of the chamber. Then came the empire, and M. Grévy went back to his law-books. He and his brother must have prospered at the bar, for in 1851 they had houses in Paris, in which after the coup d'état Victor Hugo and his friends lay concealed. When the emperor attempted constitutional reforms in 1869, Grévy was again elected deputy from the Jura. He acted with dignity and moderation, though he voted always with the advanced party. Gambetta he personally disliked, having an antipathy to his dictatorial ways. When the National Assembly met at Bordeaux to decide the fate of France, Grévy was made its speaker, or president, but when the coup d'état in favour of Henri V was meditated, he was got rid of beforehand after he had presided for two turbulent years over an assembly distracted and excited. Everyone respected M. Grévy. There was very little of the typical Frenchman in his composition. He was of middle height, rather stout, with a large, bald, well-shaped head. He was no lover of society, but was a diligent worker, and his favourite amusements were billiards and the humble game of dominoes. His wife was the good woman suited to such a husband, 
but his daughter his only child was considered by parisian society pretentious and a blue-stocking she married after her father's elevation to the presidency m daniel wilson a frenchman in spite of his english name m grevy's eli-like toleration of the sins of his daughter's husband caused his overthrow in marshal macmahon's time there were two points on which he as president insisted on having his own way that is anything related to army affairs or to the granting civilians the cross of the legion of honour he did not object to the decoration of civilians but he insisted upon knowing the antecedents of the gentleman recommended for the distinction well would it have been for m grevy had he followed the example of his predecessor the marshal would never give the cross to a man whom he knew to be a free thinker his reply to such applications always was quote, if he is not a christian what does he want with a cross End quote. it is said that in eighteen seventy seven when the marshal thought of resigning rather than accepting such an advanced republican as m jules simon as chief of his cabinet he sent for m grevy and asked him point-blank do you want to become president of the republic quote, i am not in the least ambitious for that honour replied m grevy quote, if i were sure you would be elected in my place i would resign continued the marshal but I do not know what would happen if I were to go. Quote, My strong advice to you is not to resign, said M. Grévy. Only bring this crisis to an end by choosing your ministers out of the Republican majority, and you will be pleased with yourself afterwards for having done your duty. Quote, well, you are an honest man, M. Grévy. I wish there were more like you, said the marshal, and having shaken hands with M. Grévy, he dismissed him, though without promising to follow his advice. He reflected on it that night, however, and adopted it the next morning but when advised to take gambetta for his minister he replied quote, i do not expect my ministers to go to mass with me or to shoot with me but they must be men with whom i can have some common ground of conversation and i cannot talk with ce monsieur la indeed gambetta was often shy and awkward in social intercourse seldom giving the impression in private life of the powers of burning eloquence with which he could in public move friend or foe nor had m grevy been by any means always in accord with the fiery southerner at Tours, he objected to Gambetta's measures as wholly unconstitutional. Quote, you are one of those men, retorted Gambetta, who expect to make omelettes without breaking the eggs. Quote, you are not making omelettes, but a mess, retorted M. Grévy. Both the marshal and his successor were sportsmen and gave hunting parties, those of the marshal being as much in royal style as possible. M. Grévy preferred republican simplicity when he was allowed as speaker of the house to live in marie antoinette's apartments in the chateau of versailles he might have been seen any day sauntering about the streets with his hands in his pockets or smoking his cigar at the door of a cafe he had a brougham but he rarely used it his coachman grumbled at having to follow him at a foot-pace when he took long walks in the country his servants did not like the marshals wear grey and scarlet liveries but his household arrangements were more dignified and liberal than those of m he had a curious way of receiving his friends sans ceremonie. Three mornings in the week his old intimate associates, artists, journalists, deputies, etc., entered the presidential palace unannounced, and went straight to an apartment fitted up for fencing. There, taking masks and foils, they amused themselves, till presently M. Grévy would come in, make the tour of the room, speak a few words to each, and invite one or two of them to breakfast with him. Both M. Grévy and Marshal McMahon held their cabinet meetings in that salle of the Élysée which is hung round with the portraits of sovereigns. Opposite to M. Grévy's chair hung a portrait of Queen Victoria, and it was remarked that he always gazed at her while his ministers discoursed around him. 
but his happiness poor man was in his private apartments where his daughter her husband m wilson and his little grandchild made part of his household m grevy gave handsome dinners at the elysee and madame grevy and madame wilson gave receptions and occasionally handsome balls everything was done quote, decently and in order end quote, much like an american president's housekeeping but without show or brilliancy having divulged in this gossip about the courts of the presidents for much of which i am indebted to a writer in temple bar we will turn to graver history when m grevy became president gambetta succeeded to his place as president of the chamber he did not desire the post of prime minister his new position made him the second man in france and seemed to point him out as the future candidate for the presidency m de Favre became chief of the cabinet and m waddington minister for foreign affairs but gambetta whether in or out of office was the leader of his party and a sense of the responsibilities of leadership made him far more cautious and less fiery than he had been in former days yet even then he had said emphatically quote, no republic can last long in france that is not based on law order and respect for property End quote. in august eighteen eighty however eighteen months after m grevy's elevation to the presidency gambetta became prime minister he flattered himself that he might do great things for france for he believed that he could count on the support of every true republican he was mistaken three months after he accepted office the radicals and the conservatives combined for his overthrow he was defeated in the chamber on a question of the scrutin de liste and resigned gambetta's disappointment was very great he had counted on his popularity and had hoped to accomplish great things he was a man of loose morals and of declining health for unsuspected by himself a disorder from which he could never have recovered was undermining his strength this made him irritable on the thirtieth of august eighteen eighty two he was visiting at a country-house near paris a lady of impaired reputation there he was shot in the hand the wound brought on an illness of which he died in december it has never been known whether the shot was fired by the woman as was generally suspected or whether his own pistol as he asserted was accidentally discharged he was buried at Père Lachaise without religious services, but his coffin was followed by vast crowds, and all Frenchmen, even his enemies, and they were many, felt that his country had lost an honest patriot and a great man. On the centennial anniversary of the opening act of the French Revolution, a statue of Gambetta was unveiled in the Place du Carousel, the courtyard of French kings. No future king, if any such should be, will dare to displace it. Gambetta's life was a sad one, and his death was sadder still. With all his noble qualities, and there are few things nobler in history than the manner in which he effaced himself to give place to his rival, how great he might have been had he learned early to apply his power of self-restraint to lesser things. Gambetta wanted Paris to remain the city of cities, the centre of art, fashion, and culture, and he took up the Emperor Napoleon's policy of beautifying and improving it by costly public works. Quote, Je veux ma république belle, bien parée. I want my republic beautiful and well dressed, was a sentence which brought him into trouble with the radicals, who said he had no right to say my republic, as if he were looking forward to being its dictator. He voted for the return of the communists from New Caledonia, and during the last two years of his life these returned exiles never ceased to thwart him and revile him. Someone had prophesied to him that this would be the case. Quote, bah! he answered the poor wretches have suffered enough i might have been transported myself had not matters turned out differently in eighteen seventy had he lived it is probable that in eighteen eighty six he would have supplanted m grevy 
nor says one of his friends can it be doubted that loving the republic as he did and having served it with so much devotion and honesty he would have found in his love a power of self-restraint to keep him from courses that might have been hurtful to his own work for the establishment of the republic was principally his own work he proclaimed its birth standing in a window of the hotel de ville in eighteen seventy he gave it a baptism of some glory in the fiery though hopeless resistance he opposed to the german invasion and he kept it standing at a time when it needed the support of a sturdy vigilant champion to the end it must be believed that he would as far as in him lay have preserved it from harm not long before his death during a lull in his pain which for a moment roused a hope of his recovery he said to his doctor quote, i have made many mistakes but people must not imagine i am not aware of them I often think over my faults, and if things go well, I shall try the patience of my friends less often. On se corrige. End, quote. End of section 33.